Internetworking Layer, IP. Now that we can move data across a single link, it's time to figure out how to move it across the country or around the world. To send data from your computer to any of a billion destinations, the data needs to move across multiple hops and across multiple networks. When you travel from your home to a distant destination, you might walk from your home to a bus stop, take a train to the city, take another train to the airport, take a plane to a different airport, take a taxi into the city, then take a train to a smaller town, a bus to an even smaller town, and finally walk from the bus stop to your hotel. A packet also needs to take multiple forms of transportation to reach its destination. For a packet taking its trip to another country, the walk, bus, train, and plane can be thought of as different link layers like Wi-Fi, Ethernet, fiber optic, and satellite. Traveling packets. At each point during the trip, you, or your packet, are being transported using a shared medium. There might be hundreds of other people on the same bus, train, or plane, but your trip is different from that of every other traveler because of the decisions that you make at the end of each of your hops. For instance, when you arrive at a train station, you might get off one train, then walk through the station and select a particular outbound train to continue your journey. Travelers with different starting points and destinations make a different series of choices. All of the choices you make during your trip result in you following a series of links, or hops, along a route that takes you from your starting point to your destination. As your packet travels from its starting point to its destination, it also passes through a number of stations where a decision is made as to which output link your packet will be forwarded on. For packets, we call these places routers. Like train stations, routers have many incoming and outgoing links. Some links may be fiber optic, others might be satellite, and still others might be wireless. The job of the router is to make sure packets move through the router and end up on the correct outbound link layer. A typical packet passes through from 5 to 20 routers as it moves from its source to its destination. But unlike a train station where you need to look at displays to figure out the next train you need to take, the router looks at the destination address to decide which outbound link your packet needs to take. It is as if a train station employee met every single person getting off an inbound train, asked them where they were headed, and escorted them to their next train. If you were a packet, you would never have to look at another screen with a list of train departures and tracks. The router is able to quickly determine the outbound link for your packet because every single packet is marked with its ultimate destination address. This is called the Internet Protocol Address, or IP Address for short. We carefully construct IP addresses to make the router's job of forwarding packets as efficient as possible. Internet Protocol, IP, Addresses In the previous section where we talked about link layer addresses, we said that link addresses were assigned when the hardware was manufactured and stayed the same throughout the life of a computer. We cannot use link layer addresses to route packets across multiple networks because there is no relationship between a link layer address and the location where that computer is connected to the network. With portable computers and cell phones moving constantly, the system would need to track each individual computer as it moved from one location to another. And with billions of computers on the network, using the link layer address to make routing decisions would be slow and inefficient. To make this easier, we assign another address to every computer based on where the computer is connected to the network. There are two different versions of IP addresses. The old, classic, IPv4 addresses consist of four numbers separated by dots like this, and look like this. 
0-9-7-8-1-2-5. Each of the numbers can only be from 0 through 255. We have so many computers connected to the internet now that we are running out of IPv4 addresses to assign to them. IPv6 address are longer and look like 2001-0-DB8-85-3-0042-1000-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0
The recovery when a router loses an outbound link is surprisingly simple. The router discards all of the entries in its routing table that were being routed on that link. Then as more packets arrive for those network numbers, the router goes through the root discovery process again, this time asking all the neighboring routers except the ones that can no longer be contacted due to the broken link. Dynamic routing. Packets are routed more slowly for a while as routing tables are rebuilt that reflect the new network configuration, but after a while things are humming along nicely. This is why it is important for there to always be at least two independent paths from a source network to a destination network in the core of the network. If there are always at least two possible independent routes, we say that a network is a two-connected network. A two-connected network can recover from any single link outage. In places where there are a lot of network connections, like the east coast of the United States, the network could lose many links without ever becoming completely disconnected. But when you are at your home or school and have only one connection, if that connection goes down you are disconnected completely. At some point the broken link is repaired or a new link is brought up, and the router wants to make best use of the new links. The router is always interested in improving its routing tables, and looks for opportunities to improve its routing tables in its spare time. When there is a lull in communication, a router will ask a neighboring router for all or part of its routing table. The router looks through the neighbor's tables and if it looks like the other router has a better route to a particular network number, it updates its network table to forward packets for that network number through the link to the router that has a better route. With these approaches to outages and the exchange of routing table information, routers can quickly react to network outages and reroute packets from links that are down or slow to links that are up and or faster. All the while, each router is talking to its neighboring routers to find ways to improve its own routing table. Even though there is no central source of the best route from any source to any destination, the routers are good at knowing the fastest path from a source to a destination nearly all the time. Routers are also good at detecting and dynamically routing packets around links that are slow or temporarily overloaded. One of the side effects of the way routers discover the structure of the network is that the route your packets take from the source to the destination can change over time. You can even send one packet immediately followed by another packet and because of how the packets are routed, the second packet might arrive at the destination before the first packet. We don't ask the IP layer to worry about the order of the packets. It already has enough to worry about. We pour our packets with source and destination IP addresses into the internet much like we would send out a bunch of letters in the mail at the post office. The packets each find their way though the system and arrive at their destinations. Determining your route. There is no place in the internet that knows in advance the route your packets will take from your computer to a particular destination. Even the routers that participate in forwarding your packets across the internet do not know the entire route your packet will take. They only know which link to send your packets to so they will get closer to their final destination. But it turns out that most computers have a network diagnostic tool called TraceRoute, or TraceRoute, depending on the operating system, that allows you to trace the route between your computer and a destination computer. Given that the route between any two computers can change from one packet to another, when we trace a route, it is only a pretty good guess as to the actual route packets will take. The traceroute command does not actually trace your packet at all. It takes advantage of a feature in the IP network protocol that was designed to avoid packets becoming trapped in the network and never reaching their destination. Before we take a look at traceroute, let's take a quick look at how a packet might get trapped in the network forever and how the IP protocol solves that problem. 
Remember that the information on any single router is imperfect and is only an approximation of the best outbound link for a particular network number, and each router has no way of knowing what any other router will do. But what if we had three routers with routing table entries that formed an endless loop? Routing Vodex. Each of the routers thinks it knows the best outbound link for IP addresses that start with 212.78 inches. But somehow the routers are a little confused and their routing tables form a loop. If a packet with a prefix of 212.78 inches found its way into one of these routers, it would be routed around a circle of three links forever. There is no way out. As more packets arrived with the same prefix, they would just be added to the infinite packet vortex. Pretty soon the links would be full of traffic going round and round, the routers would fill up with packets waiting to be sent, and all three routers would crash. This problem is worse than having someone trip over a fiber optic cable, since it can cause several routers to crash. To solve this problem, the internet protocol designers added a number to each packet that is called the time to live, CTL. This number starts out with a value of about 30. Each time an IP packet is forwarded down a link, the router subtracts one from the TTL value. So if the packet takes 15 hops to cross the internet, it will emerge on the far end with a TTL of 15. But now let's look at how the TTL functions when there is a routing loop, or packet vortex, for a particular network number. Since the packet keeps getting forwarded around the loop, eventually the TTL reaches zero. And when the TTL reaches zero, the router assumes that something is wrong and throws the packet away. This approach ensures that routing loops do not bring whole areas of the network down. So that is a pretty cool bit of network protocol engineering. To detect and recover from routing loops, we just put a number in, subtract one from that number on each link, and when the number goes to zero throw the packet away. It also turns out that when the router throws a packet away, it usually sends back a courtesy notification, something like, sorry I had to throw your packet away, the message includes the IP address of the router that threw the packet away. Network loops are actually pretty rare, but we can use this notification that a packet was dropped to map the approximate route a packet takes through the network. The traceroute program sends packets in a tricky manner to get the routers that your packets pass through to send it back notifications. First, traceroute sends a packet with a TTL of 1. That packet gets to the first router and is discarded and your computer gets a notification from the first router. Then Traceroute sends a packet with a TTL of 2. That packet makes it through the first router and is dropped by the second router, which sends you back a note about the discarded packet. Then Traceroute sends a packet with a TTL of 3, and continues to increase the TTL until the packet makes it all the way to its destination. With this approach, Traceroute builds up an approximate path that your packets are taking across the network. Traceroute from Michigan to Stanford. It took 14 hops to get from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Palo Alto, California. The packets passed through Kansas, Texas, Los Angeles, and Oakland. This might not be the best route between the two cities if you are driving a car or taking a train, but on that day for packets between the two cities this was the best route on the internet. Notifications of dropped packets. You can also see how long it took the packets to make it from the source to each router, and then from the source to the destination. A millisecond, ms, is a 1, 1000, of a second. So 77.317 milliseconds is just under a tenth of a second. This network is pretty fast. Sometimes a traceroute can take a little while, up to a minute or two. 
Not all routers will give you the I discarded your packet message. In the example above, the router at hop 13 threw our packet away without saying I am sorry. Traceroute waits for the message and after a few seconds just gives up and increases the TTL value so it gets past the road router. If you run a traceroute for a connection that includes an undersea cable, you can see how fast data moves under the sea. Here is a traceroute between the University of Michigan and Peking University in China. Traceroute from Michigan to Peking University. You can see when the packet is encountering a long undersea cable in steps 7 and 8. The time goes from less than 1 slash 10 of a second to nearly 1 slash 4 of a second. Even though 1 slash 4 of a second is slower than 1 slash 10 a second, it is pretty impressive when you consider that the packet is going nearly all of the way around the world in that 1 slash 4 second. The core of our IP network is remarkable. Most of the time we don't really care how hard the routers are working to make sure our packets move quickly from our computer to the various destinations around the world. Next we will move from looking at how the core of the network functions to how IP addresses are managed at the edges. Getting an IP address. Increasingly, computers are portable or mobile. We just pointed out how important it was for the IP layer to track large groups of computers using network numbers instead of tracking every single computer individually. But since these network numbers indicate a particular physical connection to the network, when we move a computer from one location to another, it will need a new IP address. Remember that the link layer address is set when a computer is manufactured and never changes throughout the life of the computer. If you close your laptop in one coffee shop and reopen it using your home Wi-Fi, your computer will need a different IP address. This ability for your computer to get a different IP address when it is moved from one network to another uses a protocol called Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, or DHCP for short. DCHP is pretty simple. Going back to the link layer section, recall the first thing your computer does at the link level is ask is there a base station on this network, by sending a message to a special broadcast address. Once your computer is successfully connected at the link layer through that base station, it sends another broadcast message, this time asking is there a gateway connected to this network that can get me to the internet? If there is, tell me your IP address and tell me what IP address I should use on this network. When a gateway router replies, your computer is given a temporary IP address to use on that network, for instance, while you are at the coffee shop. After the router has not heard from your computer for a while, it decides you are gone and loans the IP address to another computer. If this process of reusing a loaned IP address goes wrong, two computers end up on the same network with the same IP address. Perhaps you have seen a message on your computer to the effect of, another computer is using 192.168.0.5, we have stopped using this address. Your computer sees another computer with a link address other than its own using the IP address that your computer thinks is assigned to it. Getting an IP address via DHCP, but most of the time this dynamic IP address assignment, DHCP, works perfectly. You open your laptop and in a few seconds you are connected and can use the internet. Then you close your laptop and go to a different location and are given a different IP address to use at that location. In some operating systems, when a computer connects to a network, issues a DHCP request, and receives no answer, it decides to assign itself an IP address anyway. Often these self-assigned addresses start with 169. When your computer has one of these self-assigned IP addresses, it thinks it is connected to a network and has an IP address, 
but without a gateway, it has no possibility of getting packets routed across the local network and onto the internet. The best that can be done is that a few computers can connect to a local network, find each other, and play a networked game. There is not much else that can be done with these self-assigned IP addresses. A different kind of address reuse. If you know how to find the IP address on your laptop, you can do a little experiment and look at the different IP addresses you get at different locations. If you made a list of the different addresses you received at the different locations, you might find that many of the locations give out addresses with a prefix of 192.168. This seems to be a violation of the rule that the network number, IP address prefix, is tied to the place where the computer is connected to the internet, but a different rule applies to addresses that start with 192.168. The prefix 10 is also special. Addresses that start with 192.168 are called non-routable addresses. This means that they will never be used as real addresses that will route data across the core of the network. They can be used within a single local network, but not used on the global network. So then how is it that your computer gets an address like 192.168.0.5 on your home network and it works perfectly well on the overall internet? This is because your home router gateway base station is doing something we call network address translation, or NAT. The gateway has a single routable IP address that it is sharing across multiple workstations that are connected to the gateway. Your computer uses its non-routable address like 192.160.0.5 to send its packets, but as the packets move across the gateway, the gateway replaces the address with its actual routable address. When packets come back to your workstation, the router puts your workstation's non-routable address back into the returning packets. This approach allows us to conserve the real routable addresses and use the same non-routable addresses over and over for workstations that move from one network to another. Global IP Address Allocation If you wanted to connect the network for a new organization to the Internet you would need to contact an Internet service provider and make a connection. Your ISP would give you a range of IP addresses, that is, one or more network numbers, that you could allocate to the computers attached to your network. The ISP assigns you network numbers by giving you a portion of the network numbers they receive from a higher level internet service provider. At the top level of IP address allocations are five regional internet registries, RIRs. Each of the five registries allocates IP addresses for a major geographic area. Between the five registries, every location in the world can be allocated a network number. The five registries are North America, ARIN, South and Central America, LACNIC, Europe, RIPE-NCC, Asia-Pacific, APNIC, and Africa, AFRNIC. When the classic IPv4 addresses like 212-78-125 were invented, only a few thousand computers were connected to the Internet. We never imagined then that someday we would have a billion computers on the Internet. But today with the expansion of the Internet and the Internet of Things where smart cars, refrigerators, thermostats, and even lights will need IP addresses, we need to connect far more than a billion computers to the Internet. To make it possible to connect all these new computers to the Internet, engineers have designed a new generation of the Internet protocol called IPv6. The 128-bit IPv6 addresses are much longer than the 32-bit IPv4 addresses. The regional Internet registries, RIRs, are leading the transition from IPv4 to IPv6. 
the transition from IPv4 to IPv6 will take many years. During that time, both IPv4 and IPv6 must work seamlessly together. Summary. The internetworking protocol layer extends our network from a single hop, link layer, to a series of hops that result in packets quickly and efficiently being routed from your computer to a destination IP address and back to your computer. The IP layer is designed to react and route around network outages and maintain near-ideal routing paths for packets moving between billions of computers without any kind of central routing clearing house. Each router learns its position within the overall network, and by cooperating with its neighboring routers helps move packets effectively across the Internet. The IP layer is not 100% reliable. Packets can be lost due to momentary outages of because the network is momentarily confused about the path that a packet needs to take across the network. Packets that your system sends later can find a quicker route through the network and arrive before packets that your system sent earlier. It might seem tempting to design the IP layer so that it never loses packets and ensures that packets arrive in order, but this would make it nearly impossible for the IP layer to handle the extreme complexities involved in connecting so many systems. So instead of asking too much of the IP layer, we leave the problem of packet loss and packets that arrive out of order to our next layer up, the transport layer. This is a chapter from the book titled Introduction to Networking written by Charles R. Severance. This material is currently in draft and is copyright all rights reserved. When the book is complete and published, the author will change the copyright to be Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial. Please contact the author of the book at csev at umich.edu if you have any questions or comments regarding the book.